Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guests are Benji Samet and Dan Hernandez. Benji and Dan are the screenwriters of Pokemon Detective Pikachu. They're also the writers and producers of One Day at a Time, The Tick, and other cult classics. Benji, Dan, what's going on? How's it going? What's up? It's Sunday. <laughs> Love what that. better day to talk writing. Love the energy. My first question always being, where are you in the world right now? We're in Los Angeles. Not in the same place at the moment. Uh, we're on opposite ends of the beautiful, hot San Fernando Valley. I was um, going to say trapped in my own head. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of where I, I am. But geographically, uh, I'm in the beautiful San Fernando Valley. As writers who work together, you're in LA, so obviously you're physically close, but in LA, it can take a while to get anywhere. What are the challenges that, that poses for you? Do you mostly just work via calls and Skype? So it's a combination of everything, I would say. When we're on a TV show, obviously we're working out of the show's production office and the writer's room and together. But yeah, when we're working on movies and some of our own stuff, sometimes one of us will schlep to the other person's house. But honestly, we do a lot, yeah, through our computers, because when we first started writing together, Dan was actually living in New York, and I was in LA, so we sort of got in the habit of, like, you know, using Dropbox and Google Docs and, you know, s different ways to, to work on things together or separately and, and just go back and forth, and we've sort of carried that over, even though we're both in LA. And how did you guys arrive in LA specifically? Can you walk me through kind of how that all happened and what was going through your minds, why you went there? Did you grow up there? What's your kind of inception story? I grew up here. So for me, it was, yeah, really simple. You know, we, Dan and I met in college and I knew I was coming back to LA. I had a place to stay at my mom's right after college. And yeah, I just knew that, you know, this was the hub of, you know, TV and movies and everything I wanted to be a part of. And yeah, eventually I convinced Dan to come out too. And then I had a place to stay at his mom's house. <laughs> I, I was fortunate in the sense that TV and movie writing had always seemed to me as a young lad growing up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, something that other people did, you know, sort of vaguely understood yeah, that's a profession that certain people have. I don't know who those people are or how you get into that, even though it's something I'm interested in. And then by meeting Benji, who actually grew up here in Los Angeles and sort of was more familiar with the sort of mechanics of actually starting a career as a, as a writer, it opened my eyes to the fact that this was a viable, you know, obviously a very difficult and frustrating career path, but it was a thing that people really could do. And so I kind of pivoted from mostly writing fiction and theater in college and sold out pretty much immediately. And did you mention how you specifically met? Because I know you were working together when you were in New York, Benji, when you were in uh, LA. How did that, how do you guys connect? Yes. And so we both 
we met in college. We went to Brown in Providence, Rhode Island. And yeah, we did a lot of, we both sort of found each other in the theater community at Brown. Did a lot of plays, good and bad. And yeah, you know. stressed about (laughs) (laughs) But we, yeah, we just started working together. And then ultimately we were paired up in the equivalent of a senior thesis theater class, which was a solo performance class. So each person in the class, and there were only 10 people in it, became responsible for writing, producing, directing their own hour-long solo show. And they kind of pair you up with a spotter to make sure that you don't go hopelessly insane. And Benji and I got paired up together. We kind of rigged the voting a little bit. It was one of those things like rank your preferences. And so we both, we weren't, we were friends, but we weren't to the extent that we are now like life partners and like, you know, psychic, psychically linked. But we we had, I guess, an intuition that we would work well together. And we were working every day for, you know, six, seven months. And it just worked. And we had a lot of fun. And so the idea of continuing to have that fun after college, when Benji said, hey, what if we kept writing together? It, It was just so, you know, we had worked so well together that it seemed to make a lot of sense. And how did you continue to get work together? Obviously, you were writing as a duo. How do you kind of convince someone to give you a job as a duo? Is it the same thing as being a single writer? or? I mean, sort of. You know, it's, I, I think, you know, we broke in through TV. And in TV, you find a lot of writing teams. And I do think that some TV shows, especially comedies, like to hire writing teams because you sort of get two writers for the price of one. So it is. <laughs> a bit of a selling point but yeah so it was you know we were committed to each other and you know all the meetings we took and the sample scripts we sent out and you know it was all as the two of us and so you know we sort of became known throughout the industry as an entity of two but it was still i mean it was still the same difficult path you know as as a team you're in some ways, you know, maybe you're more attractive because there's two of you. But at the same time, when you go to have these job interviews, the bosses have to like both of you. Right. <laughs> right. So there, there is a, an element of kind of saying, oh, here are the strengths and here are the things that each of you, they bring as a team. But then individually, what what are they into? Well, you know, Benji is a magician. You know, that, that's just a fact. He's got he's got the skills. <laughs> he's, he's mystical. That's, you know, that's a unique thing about him that that has come up a lot more often than you'd imagine in the writer's room. And so you have to sort of be able to not only define yourselves as a partnership, but quickly get across, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And when you team the two of us up, Marvel team up, super, you know, better than you could have hoped. For our themes for this podcast, we usually go through process. For this episode's theme, I would love to talk writing a screenplay, using yeah. a you know, Pokemon Detective Pikachu as an example. Are you guys cool with kind of just running through the process? Yeah, we'd love to. Sure. Awesome. So this particular job, how did it come about? Now, I know from doing a little bit of research, I know there were some other writers involved as well. When did you get brought on? Who was the team that was working on this from a writing perspective? And where did you guys fit in? Yeah, so we actually came in pretty early on in the process. You know, yeah, at the very beginning... Nicole Perlman and Alex Hirsch had started working on some ideas and early outline stuff together, but it was, yeah, they eventually they had other things they had to do. And I think there were 
you know, I don't know what, I mean, I wasn't there for, for that part, but whatever the reason was, they didn't quite crack it. So they moved on and the producers who Dan and I had worked with in the past, we wrote a movie for them that didn't get produced, but it was a good process for writing it and they liked us. And I think the biggest part was that they knew we were giant nerds. Um, and so when they were struggling to figure out, you know, exactly how to do Detective Pikachu, they were like, you know, who are the nerdiest people we know? Right. Oh, Dan and Benji. Normally not advantageous at this one time. It served us really well. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so they called us in and, you know, we we knew that it was Detective Pikachu. Like it was it was based off this japanese video game at the time like detective pikachu the game was only out in japan and so we they gave us the loose translation of like the japanese script and they said all right find a movie in this and so it was challenging because it's not your standard pokemon story it it was you know there's no battling there's no trainers there's no pokeballs pikachu talks and so there were just it's not what people expected from the first Pokemon movie. So it was kind of a challenge, but it was also sort of freeing in a way that we could just make a story that we found interesting and that we thought people would want to see. And it gave us the freedom to sort of just have fun with it and uh, do some things that people weren't expecting. And you know, hopefully it paid off. Uh, you know, Based on fan response, I, I'm happy with how it turned out. And I know there were obviously Rob Letterman, director... I saw a yeah. credit for Derek Connolly, who wrote Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and Kong Kong. Yes. What were their involvements? And in? Yeah, so, you know, Rob was involved since pretty much the beginning as the director. And so he would do drafts, you know, between drafts. You know, we sat in a writer's room with just us and Rob for weeks, you know, ironing things out. And then we would write something, and Rob would take a pass. It was actually, it was a very collaborative process. And I think we were well suited to it because it was similar to TV where, you know, we're used to working with other people and other people taking a pass. And yeah, Derek also came in at various points and and did a few drafts. And there were also a few other writers that came in during the process. And so there were a lot of different people putting their, you know, little marks on it here and there. But I would say Dan and I, we were the ones that really at the beginning, like, figured out what is the story what is the journey that these characters are going on what are the big set pieces like sort of the the scene by scene of the movie the big picture stuff that was all all the stuff that that we really came up with i know you guys got a story credit and a screenplay credit we've never really talked about this on the podcast but could you explain that key difference is there a hard line as far as who gets what and and why yeah i mean there's it, it goes through you know the writers guild arbitration process Which is when, you know, it's sort of like every single draft of outlines and scripts uh, from all the different people involved with the writing gets sent to the Writers Guild and a panel of, you know, anonymous writers reads everything and makes a determination of who gets credit for what. And so, you know, the the story credit is what it sounds like. It's, you know, the, it's the outline structure, character arcs, you know, the themes, things like that. And the screenplay that takes in like specific scene structure, as well as dialogue and, you know, some of the characterizations, the little quirks, things like that. Uh, You know, it's the nitty gritty of the screenplay. 
And so the Writers Guild arbiters decided that Dan and I contributed a lot to both the story and the screenplay. And so that's why we wound up with both of those credits. And the order of the name, I mean, there's all sorts of rules. Like the order of the names is also significant, whether you're credited first, second, third on the screenplay, first or second on the story. Only two people can have story. Up to three entities can have screenplay. So it's very, it's sort of a Byzantine process. And it is, it is a little daunting as a writer because there are a lot of people who have gone through this process who maybe don't get the credit that they hope that they're going to get or a credit that they feel that was earned. And, you know, you, you have to hope that this you know panel of arbiters is, is going to see it from the point of view that you have and you have an opportunity to kind of state your case. And I, I actually think the system works well, but it is the unknown. It's a very much an unknown process. It takes a long time to, to gear up. And uh, we were, I, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I was quite anxious about it because you think it's going to go a certain way, but you, you, you can't help but start to think, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, what, right. what if this? What if that? And when we got that notification that, you know, it had kind of worked out the way that we, we hoped it would, uh, it was a very validating moment and a really huge moment in our careers because uh, we're just really proud of this movie. Right. And and also, I mean, this is our, you know, we've done a lot of TV, but this is our first movie. And so we had never been through the, the feature arbitration process before. And we've heard a lot of stories about it. And yeah. And so it was, it was a new experience for us. And yeah, luckily it all worked out. Awesome. Starting from the outline phase, you guys mentioned that you were developing it from obviously using pre-established characters, uh, the video game, Mm -hmm. etc. Obviously, you chose not to use the the Ash character. What did those meetings look like when you sat down and were like, okay, what's the story going to be? And how did you go through it, come up with the characters, you know, all that? Yeah. So, I mean, as I said, we were basing it off of this Detective Pikachu video game. And so, like, you know, the main character of Tim Goodman is the main character in that game. but it's really like the only similarities is like in their, that they're named Tim Goodman and that their dad went missing and they find this Pikachu. And, and from there we sort of took off into a different direction and, and actually went into some, you know, really characterizing like, who is this Tim Goodman? Who is this Pikachu? What is this journey they're going on? What is the theme of this going to be? And I mean, what we really wanted to do is I know Dan, and I, at the very beginning, were talking about just like the classic noir detective stories that, that we liked in the movies that we liked. And we wanted to, to try and emulate that in the world of Pokemon. Yeah, I think that the challenge is there's been a lot of amazing Pokemon material over you know the past you know, 25 years. So I think that there was a balance to strike between do we want to tell a story that has been told before well, or do we want to try to do something that maybe is a little bit more of a risk, but isn't expected and isn't something that anyone will go into the movie knowing exactly what's going to happen or even really having a, a, you know, a sense of what this new part of the Pokemon world is, because it is, it is something we haven't seen before. At the same time, you're also balancing it with, well, as a fan of Pokemon and someone who grew up with it, I want to see a Bulbasaur in this movie. I want to see a Charizard in this movie. I want to see Jigglypuff in this movie. And I'll be disappointed if I don't 
see those guys. And, and that was one of the, the most difficult things is knowing individuals who would lobby us like, oh, you've got to put, you know, Cubone in the movie. And we're like, okay, well, you're going to, you know, you're going to be happy. And then someone else will have another favorite one. And you kind of have to be like, well, you know, we'll see, you know, I don't know. So we had to make some tough choices about what were the essential things that would be in a Pokemon movie as that we as fans would want to see. And which are the things that, that kind of had to maybe be pushed off for the future or, you know, we'll see what happens with it. But Right. And it was, a, it was a lot of like, when you're choosing from the 800 different Pokemon to put in a movie and in the movie, there's only like, you know, 50 or 60 total Pokemon, because obviously there's not a budget to have every single Pokemon in the movie. And so when we're picking which ones to feature, yeah, it was a lot of discussions of like, which of these Pokemon translate the best to a live action movie? What feels the most cinematic, you know, what have the, you know, the most three dimensional characters, like beyond Pikachu, like the biggest Pokemon character in the movie is Psyduck. And that was something that, you know, that Psyduck does not exist in the video game we were basing it off of. We just knew that, you know, Psyduck was always one of our favorite Pokemon. And it has like a built in character quirk the fact that it's always stressed out, it's always, it's very neurotic. And the more stressed it gets, its brain explodes. And so, like, that right there is just like a comedic game and, you know, just a fun character quirk that you can play with that is inherent to the character, unlike, you know, some other Pokemon that don't have, you know, such a clear story built into them like that. Or like Mr. Mime was another one that's just like, oh, we can do a police interrogation with a mime. There's there's just a built-in comedic game there. So it was like going through the, the Pokedex, the list of all 800 Pokemon, and finding the ones that best fit the story and that we could have the most fun with. And what did that outline look like? And what did you use? Were you guys typing in a shared Google Doc? Were you writing out yeah. note cards? We, at the very beginning, when we were breaking the initial beats of the story with the director, we had note cards up on the wall. And then once we got a very loose structure that we were feeling good about, yeah, then there was a shared Google Doc that Dan and I were in of just, you know, just like a prose format writing through it's probably how many pages would you say that outline was dan like 10 12 pages it's longer than that actually it's i I think it's it's closer i think the final one is closer to 15 or 17 pages long Mm. yeah because you know as you keep going back to it you know you're getting notes from from the director you're getting notes from the producers and and you're you're finding we work with uh a, a brilliant man named ben edland who created the tick and he was the showrunner of the tick and he always says you have to pressure test your ideas uh, meaning you might have an idea you think is good, but until you apply some pressure to it, you're not really sure. And I think that the outlining stage is a lot of pressure testing. It's a lot of rewriting and figuring out if there's a better way to do this, a certain sequence, if there's a better way to you know, articulate the character of you know, your protagonist or your villain, or in this case, how to give character to, aside from Detective Pikachu, these other creatures that, that don't talk. Uh, but there are other ways that you can characterize them. And so the outline kept getting bigger and bigger as we, you know, had more direction and as we continued to refine our ideas until the point that when it was time to go and write the script, so much of the the meat of what we had to write existed on the page. And it really made the process much easier. Right. Like uh, a lot of times in our outlines, we include dialogue, like, 
you know, if there's like a line or a joke that we know that we want to keep in there uh, that we come up with during the outlining phase, we throw it in the outline. Yeah, sometimes we wind up with some pretty dense outlines, but it does make the actual writing process a lot faster when we get to that. Well, I recommend it for people. If you think of a really funny piece of dialogue, put it in the outline because sometimes it's hard to say to yourself, oh, I'll remember for this funny joke that I just thought of in the moment. 99% of the time, you can't quite remember the exact wording or you can't quite remember what it was that you thought was so funny about it. And so maybe this is our background in writing you know, sitcom comedies on TV is, you know, you don't want these comedy outlines to be so dry that people's eyes just glaze over. You want to put some jokes in there. You want to have some zippy stuff in there. And I think that it served us well as far as getting ideas down. Sometimes even one joke or one moment can unlock an entire character or an entire scene, and it'll give you some clarity as to what you should be writing. And so I, I think you have to trust yourself during that outline process. So when you guys are ready to work on the script, obviously that comes the time where you need to really flesh out the dialogue. You need to write those descriptions. Every writer, I should say, has different strengths and weaknesses. You guys are a, a duo. What are your strengths and weaknesses when you start to work on the script? Are you equally good at all of those things? Or I honestly think that we both have a, have a skill set in everything. I think you sort of have to because... You know, we'll sometimes divide things up and we'll have to, you just have to trust. Like when you're in a writing team, you have to have trust in each other that like you guys can handle the same things. I mean, it's more like the power of two minds that can punch up each other and make things better. Does that make sense? Dan, would you agree with that? Well, I, I think what you're getting at is there are certainly writing teams that will say, hey, I'm the joke guy and you're the story guy or you're the structure guy, and I'm the character guy. And for whatever reason, Benji and I have never really worked in that mode. Um, we just think that everything has to be holistic if you're going to be a writer. I hope that doesn't sound too harsh to people at, at, you know, listening, but I think, let me put it this way, you should at least strive to be proficient in all of those things. And when you find two people, and this may be the most important thing of all, I trust Benji's taste, and he, he trusts my taste. There are times when we have a program called Writer Duet. That's an amazing screenwriting program. It's like Final Draft, but it's better, I think. And you can actually write in the same document at the same time. So there are moments where Benji will be writing ahead of me, and I'll be on the scene that he just wrote, editing it, changing it, correcting oh, it. Wow. And we're literally working simultaneously on different parts of the script with complete trust the other one isn't making it worse um, right. and i it, think that that takes a long time to cultivate but that's been our process and that's been our methodology yeah it's one of those things where like if we're reading through because like yeah as dan said like a lot of the time we're not the type of writing team that like every time we write we're sitting down at the keyboard together and every word that gets written down is you know, simultaneously agreed upon by us both. We do that sometimes. Generally, we do that more towards the end of a script process, once we're doing like final tweaks and refinements and making it perfect. But at the beginning stages, especially, we do a lot of like, all right, I'm going to take a pass and then 
you'll do a pass afterwards. And during those back and forths, if one of us cuts someone else's joke or changes the scene, like almost never does the other one question the cut that was made or the change that was made. We look at it and you're like, and we're like, oh yeah, you fixed it. You made it better. We have this like inherent trust in each other that we can, you know, that we improve each other's, you know, output. And it's like, yeah, we have a built-in editing system between the two of us. But I do think, again, I do think that comes down to, to like, if I didn't trust his taste, I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable doing that with someone. But I, but we've known each other so long and we've discussed, you know, the kinds of right of but, art but, and writing that turns us on that, you know. But that I, I would it. also, I would also say that like, if you didn't trust my taste or if I didn't trust your taste, I don't think we would be writing together, you know? <laughs> no, that's true. But I, I think that, I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes writing partnerships form out of what seems like, I think sometimes people partner up because it seems like the thing to do rather than because they would actually make good partners. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And and I think that you see this, especially in TV, is a lot of times these partnerships will be on one show or a couple shows, and then they, they drift apart and they stop writing together. And I think it's because to really be in a creative partnership with someone, it, it, it actually requires a lot more than it seems it's not just like, let's make a great thing together. It's, I am capable of handling the things that are triggering to you. And mostly that's Benji handling the things that are triggering to me. Um, <laughs> you know, calming each other down. If someone is feeling optimistic, the other person might be feeling pessimistic. And we can't, it's, you know, you can't have both people feeling pessimistic at the same time about something. Or, yeah, I don't know. I just think that there's a lot of other things that go into the process of, of a writing partnership that maybe, it's hard to see from the outside until you're in, you're in it. Right. A, a good writing partnership is is really like, I mean, people say it a lot. It's like a marriage, and it really is true. But yeah, it's, it's you know, you have this other person in your life who, you know, you're dependent on them, they're dependent on you, and you're going through, you know, your entire professional existence with this person. And so, yeah, it's a, there's a, it's a big commitment. <laughs> We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. The Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do at the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? 
Yeah, it's really great. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have good podcasts and podcasts like these. You sound like a kidnapping victim. <laughs> you can find us also on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network at flickeringmyth.com along with other great shows. Check us out and check them out too. Thank you. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. So you write the first draft of the screenplay. One of our guests once described writing a a script as kind of just ironing a sheet over and over. Some writers kind of get excited after that first draft and are like, this is done already. But obviously, when you write a script, it takes many rewrites to get it perfect. Describe to us how many times, how long does that take? How long did the script take to really get it to that final place? I mean, with this one in particular, I mean, I would say Dan and I are not the types of writers that will, you know, keep on rewriting and tinkering and tinkering for you know years on the same script being like oh it's not quite perfect yet you know it's never honestly like it's never gonna be perfect uh so much of movies and tv shows like some of the best lines that we've written or the funniest lines in both you know in our tv shows and things like that are stuff that like we didn't come up with until, you know, we're on set shooting the episode and we suddenly come up with a joke and run it into the actor. So like there's no, you so, so much of it is born from like once there's a performer there and once it's on its feet. So like to sit around forever tweaking things until like, oh no, now it's finished, it's done. We don't see things that way. That being said, like we still do a lot of drafts, as many as we can with Pikachu. It was a little trickier because there was already like a set production date and there were art departments doing storyboards as we were writing scenes. And and so everything was in motion. So there was a lot of like, no, we have to turn this in now and like make it as good as we can. And we can, you know, always tweak things as it goes on and Rob tweak things as the production went on. But we didn't have the luxury of being able to sit with it for months and months to like the, tweak the, it. The train was definitely already going down the track. Yeah. And, and there was a, you know, it, it needed to, I mean, there were other reasons that were unique to this particular one, which is for instance, the, the people in Japan, the Pokemon company needed a translation of the script in order to know if it was something that they, you know, felt excited about. So, this one was definitely uh, a really high pressure situation, but ultimately a really excellent learning experience and a great chance to to take on a task that was very, very daunting and prove to yourself, oh yeah, I, we can write an entire movie in in a in a compressed period of time. And I'm really proud of how it turned out. The pressure you described is reminiscent of some. TV writing experience we've heard described when you Mm -hmm. start writing a few scripts and then they start production, you have to keep that train going. How would you compare the two writing a feature script versus your experience writing TV? I mean, in this particular instance, there was a lot of similarities. And I think that's why partially why we were so well suited to this job, uh, because we have so much TV experience. I would say, you know, probably the biggest difference 
between when you have that pressure of a TV show versus that pressure of a movie production is that with the TV show, the writers are in charge of that production. You know, the showrunner and and the other writer producers are the ones that have to make those deadlines, have to be there on set, uh, making it all work. With a movie, that person who's in charge of everything, the, the showrunner of a movie is the director. And so a lot of the other decisions and production choices and weighing in on all the other details that go beyond the script, we didn't have to do that with the movie. You know, we could give opinions and you know talk to the director and producers about stuff. But at the end of the day, we didn't have the stress of like of having to produce this thing, which is like I think the added stress that writers face in TV of you know budgets and all that stuff. Budgets, is, casting, costume, right. makeup. These are all decisions that have to be weighed in on by the showrunner. Not to mention keeping things on budget. What kind of offers you're going to make? How are you going to balance the writing staff? These are sort of I don't know executive CEO level decisions that you're suddenly putting writer in charge of. And I think that that's why showrunner is one of the most difficult jobs in the writing profession because, yes, you're the head writer, but you're also the project manager for a lot of people that maybe haven't had experience managing teams and things like that. In movies, the writer can focus a little bit more on product, I think, exclusively. But there are other considerations that come along with that, including... What is the budget of this movie? How many, you know, the scale is so much bigger. Your imagination can run a little bit wilder on a, on a movie at the scale of Pokemon because you're not trying to pinch pennies in the same way as you might on a, on a you know, episode 19 of a 22-episode season of TV. So you have to actually have a responsibility to, to think a little bit bigger, to think a little bit more... I mean, obviously, this is obviously, but you know, you have to provide the cinematic experience that's going to move someone to go to the movies and spend a lot of money to watch a complete thought. A movie is a completed thought, and a TV show doesn't always have to be. They're little nuggets, right? They're little vitamin packs of of thought. But a movie really has to feel like a meal. It has to be breakfast, lunch, and dinner and dessert. And if it's not, you're not going to be satisfied by that movie-going experience. And so I think that the, the training yourself to think a little bit bigger is, is certainly a, a cool but real challenge of, of writing a movie like Pikachu. You mentioned that the writing continues on through production. What's your role once production begins as a feature film screenwriter? You know, it depends on the production and on what your role of a writer is like there's you know there are some writers that just come in and do like some joke pitches you know as you're in production you know with pikachu dan and i weren't involved during the production we were back on one day at a time working there by the time they were filming pikachu uh but also you know this was one where when you have the writer as one of the directors uh, I think Rob was doing a lot of the production rewriting for this one, but it is, it's, you know, it's, it's tweaking things as changes come up, let's say a location changes and you need to rewrite a scene or, you know, let's say the, the actor doesn't think the jokes are working in the specific scene. You can, you know, do a pass and make changes on the fly. 
And then once the production itself is completed, obviously the film comes out. There's a, a long amount of time that happens usually between then. A, what's it like watching the words you wrote on the big screen? B, what's going through your mind as far as your next gig? Obviously, Pikachu was a, a big, successful film. Does that help you in getting your next gig? I would say, yeah. It, it's a super weird feeling of knowing, like, okay, they just filmed this thing that we wrote. Now we have to wait for, like, for instance, it was like almost, what was it, like two years, I think? It was over two years from when we wrote Pikachu to when the movie came out. And so during that whole time, yeah, we didn't really see much of it. Like, I mean, when they got close to the end, we came in and we saw a cut and gave our thoughts and, you know, but it was pretty much done at that point. And it was one of those things, especially with Pikachu, like to us, so much of that movie hinged on like what that character design looked like. Like, do we believe this CGI Pikachu? Is he cute? And like all of it was all theoretical when we were writing it. And there was a part of us that's like, if this is some weird, hideous looking CGI abomination, this movie's not going to be good. It doesn't matter if we wrote the greatest script of all time. If it doesn't look good, people are not going to like it. And you, you realize in a movie of this scale, there are so many things out of your control as the writer that you kind of just have to you know, as Hunter Thompson would say, you know, buy the ticket and take the ride, right? You just have to kind of hope for the best. And, you know, and it never really stops because, okay, you got, you know, you win your arbitration, your name is on the movie. I hope the movie's good. I hope that the movie comes out and people right. don't savage it and absolutely hate it and say that we ruined their childhood. So now you have that pressure, you know, and then you see the movie and you're like, actually, I think this movie is really good and really fun. I think people are going to really like it. I hope they go to see it because if not enough people see it and it's perceived in some way as like underperforming at the box office, that's also bad for us. And that's bad for the movie. That's bad for everyone. And then that didn't happen. And so there are all these kind of benchmarks along the way that. Right. Are, you find, you find yeah. new things to stress out about. It. You find new <laughs> things to stress about. And, and there are things that you have literally, there's nothing that you can do about it. Nothing. So as far as thinking about what your next moves are, I, I think that for us, it was to try to just be confident in the movie and, and hope that people felt the same way about it that, that we did. And, and I think that they did, which was so rewarding. And, and, you know, to be the best reviewed video game movie of all time was not a goal that we necessarily set out to achieve. But one, I'm really, really happy and grateful that we did. And I to say the movie is perfect in every way, but it wasn't a, a disaster. And that's what you're worried about. I think at certain, in the dead of night in you know, five in the morning, you're writing an emotional scene between a Bulbasaur and a human. And you're going, God, I hope this isn't bad. I hope I'm not doing a bad job. I think it's good, but we'll see what the people think. And there is some validation and see like, Oh yeah, actually people got it. They dig it. So then you say, Oh, I guess they're going to let me continue to be in this profession. And then you start to think about what are some other things that you might want to do. And, and in success, I, you know, different doors open for you that, that maybe wouldn't otherwise. Right. Like this was, as I said, this was our first, you know, movie that got produced. We've written a lot of movies that, you know, have not gotten made, but this was our first one. And so we knew that this was going to open doors for us if it all, if everything went well. 
And yeah, so far it, it has, and it's been really exciting. And it's, it's a really cool moment in our careers that is, yeah, when we step back, it's like pretty surreal. The whole thing, you have seeing our, seeing what we wrote up on the big screen, you know, we've seen it on TV a lot, but being like in that movie theater in Times Square for the premiere when there are like thousands of people there and it was this whole it was a crazy night of our lives that we'll never forget and like yeah there is a different feeling seeing this giant you know big budget Hollywood movie that was just like oh that was yeah some silly idea that we had at two in the morning and like there it is they spent millions of dollars and <laughs> thousands of people worked on it. Um, and it's a really cool feeling. Yeah. Are you guys ready for some less process focused questions? Something we call a series of seemingly random questions. I'm ready. Amazing. Uh, I, I don't Dan? know. I feel nervous <laughs> now. I well, worked myself into a hindi <laughs> on that last answer and now I have to calm down. So maybe this is good. All right. First question involves both of your Twitter bios. Benji, mm. you describe yes. yourself as a magician. Dan, a dungeon master. Gentlemen, could you please provide some insights into what these mean? And a prom Literal? king. And a prom and king. A prom That's right. King. I missed that. I did see that. <laughs> but yes, a dungeon master. <laughs> literal dungeon master? Literal dungeon master, literal prom. And Love literal ma literal magician. And literal magician. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys play Dungeons and Dragons together? We have. Uh, we have, but I am the dungeon master of, of the two. Uh, I, you know, I'm I'm extremely, extremely into it. I I've been running the same campaign now, going on three years. Wow! With a, another group of uh, great TV writers and and some old friends. And Benji was actually in our initial kickoff session, but I've designed it that he actually was evil and he betrayed the party at a critical moment. And escaped. And so, you know, if the new Rough Boys, that's the name of the group, the new Rough Boys, if you're listening, <laughs> uh, turn it off. But uh, we may we may see Benji's character again in the in the near future. Uh, that's <laughs> always been the plan. So so yes, we, we, we have game together. We have tabletop together. <laughs> I love it. Uh, the next question was asked recently by one of our previous guests. Are you morning writers or night writers? Night writers. I mean, not morning people. We have not generally. No, <laughs> I would say most of most of Detective Pikachu was written between the hours of of midnight and five in the morning. I think that I, I tend to be nocturnal anyway, if left to my own devices. So we have over the years developed a system uh, that enables me to work late at night while at the same time. Sometimes we'll do a handoff in the more in like in the morning where I'll write all night and then Benji will will sometimes take over in the morning. That's the only morning writing we do is like if we're on a really tight deadline and we have to sort of go assembly line right, style. Right. If if I have to take the morning shift, I will. But if we're not in some sort of time crunch, then it's Dan and I both working in the middle of the night, you know, texting each other as we go through a document which was it which it was a change once we started doing uh working in tv because in tv the expectation is you'll write it during the day oftentimes at your job and i had to kind of get used to not being able to you know lie on the floor and 
You still lie. Told, you still I, lie on the floor at one day. That's <laughs> true. I, I did, but not as much. And and I was more self conscious about it. But like all of the weird takes that you develop as a solo, you know, lone wolf writer. Uh, once you're having to be around other people, you sort of have to modify your behavior ever so slightly. Um, I've done that to varying degrees of success, but. In general, if, if in a vacuum, we prefer to write it in the evening, well, late evening. So like I said, that question was suggested by a previous guest. If you guys could suggest a question that we ask one of our next guests, what would you ask and why? I guess you could each provide one, unless you want to come up with mm. one together. Mm-hmm. What's missing inside of you that made you undertake <laughs> this, this career? <laughs> what happened? I can't wait to ask that one. (laughs) Do you ever think that it will be enough, or are you vainly striving in the hope that it will, knowing that it won't? That's a little dark, I guess. That might be too dark. I think the nice way to say that is, is what does your perfect writing day look like to you? (laughs) Which leads me, well, I don't know if that sounds the same. (laughs) That's not what I meant at all. How do you stave off? The encroaching darkness that is with you at all times as a writer. <laughs> what do you do? What do we do against the darkness? Right. Robert, Robert Creeley. What is your perfect writing day? The darkness surrounds us. What can we do against it? And Robert Creeley's answer was buy a big goddamn car and drive. All right. Is that a question? Is that a good question? I, these are great questions. <laughs> um, my next questions, there are two of them. The first one, how do you stave off the increasing darkness inside you? The second one, what is your perfect day? <laughs> Actually, when paired together, I like it. <laughs> I kind of like it when paired together, but, but in that order. It has to be in that order. <laughs> well, I won't make you answer that question, but the next question is a real one. If you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? Hmm. Mm. What would you say, Dan Hunter S. Thompson? For me, that's got to be taking Hunter S. Thompson to Applebee's or, <laughs> or Ruby Tuesday or Red Robin and just experiencing the fear of American life uh, <laughs> through the greatest person who, to articulate it who would ever live. Just the, the absolute desperate vortex of... But don't of, you think if you took him there, you, you would really traumatize him? <laughs> Well, yes, but that that's the whole point. That's that's what made him do his best work. <laughs> he, says, he says he says in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, he turn, he says, I, I, I hate to say it, but I think I'm I'm getting the fear. And Hunter says, We're at the we're in the heart, we're in the vortex of the American dream and you want to turn back now. And the attorney says, I know. That's why I'm getting the fear. So there you have it. Um Benji? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's <laughs> a tough one to follow. Let's see. Who would I take out? I would maybe take, I would take Mark Twain to Taco Bell. Mark Twain to Taco Bell. Interesting. Good combination. Yeah. That's interesting. That's really interesting. I think, I think he would like it. <laughs> he probably would like it. It's very good. <laughs> If you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to the aspiring writers who are listening right now, what would you say? I mean, it's, it definitely sounds cliche, but the first thing that, that pops into my head is like, don't stop. Like, don't give up. So many people that I've seen along the way, like, you never know how long 
it's going to take to have that big break. And you never know what that big break is going to look like. No, there's no one path that can ever be copied uh, and, you know, recreated exactly the same. And so I've seen so many people that like, it doesn't happen to them the way it happens to someone else. And so they stop doing it and they find something else that's more comfortable like you sort of have to live in that discomfort for, for as long as it takes the people i've seen make it are the people like yeah they have talent but i wouldn't say necessarily everyone that i've seen make it is the most talented of everyone it's the people that stuck with it and like you know took those rejections learned from them kept going and you know decided that no there's nothing else i can do you know if you feel like there's something else that you could be doing instead then it might not be the career for you but if you have that attitude of just like oh no i'm just going to keep doing this until i get what i want uh that'll suit you well <laughs> yeah i mean I, I i would i i tend to agree with that and i i think the thing that i have been thinking about lately is i think the thing that separates people who are pretty good writers from people who I, I think are great writers um, and maybe some of the most successful writers is I, I really do think that you have to cultivate your love of storytelling and writing in a real way um, a lot. I think it is a bit of a cliche to say that writers hate writing and I have never felt that way. I've never felt that way. I am actually, frankly, skeptical of people who do feel that way a little bit. Not because it's easy. Of course, it's not easy. But I think that really learning to derive pleasure that, that you can from writing is going to make you have a better career and make you make more interesting product. I think that there are a lot of people who are very smart and very clever and who are, in fact, good writers, but maybe don't love telling stories and maybe don't really care that much about the impact that their work might have or, or the legacy that it could have and, and, and maybe who wouldn't even be making creative work in a vacuum if left to themselves. You know, for me, I wrote stories for many years that no one has ever read, no one ever will read, but I just, there were certain ideas I just had to get out and had to express just to make, to, just to have the satisfaction of seeing them from nothing to something. And if you can really learn to value the pleasure of going from something that's in your brain to something that can be printed out and handed to someone and say, hey, I, I did this, that's going to serve you really well, rather than saying, well, I'm pretty funny, so I should be a, a comedy writer, or I'm a journalist who, who isn't making enough money doing journalism, so I'm going to transition into writing. I, I think that maybe there are people that embody what I'm talking about, but I think that there are a lot who don't. And I don't think that those people are going to be in it for the long haul. So I would say cultivate the passion for your work if you can. And if you can't, consider if you're actually passionate about it. Love it. My last question, did you want to plug anything that's coming up? I know, obviously, Pikachu came out and was very successful. What's next? What can you talk about? We're currently working on uh, this upcoming show for Apple TV Plus called Central Park. Uh, it's the new show from Lauren Bouchard, the creator of Bob's Burgers, and it's an animated show. Um, and Josh Gad, our, our close dear friend. Yes. Um, I, I sound like we're Victoria. He's my dear friend. No, but he actually is our dear friend. Um, he co-created it. So we're going to be working on that. We just signed 
uh, an overall with 20th Century Fox to do a bunch of cool TV stuff that we can't fully talk about, but I assure you it was cool. And similarly, uh, we have some movie stuff coming down the pipeline that I'm hoping that we can announce soon, but similarly, we cannot talk about it yet for fear of reprisal from the powers that be. So uh, keep watch this space uh, <laughs> for now, but we, we do have some really awesome stuff coming up in the future, and we're very excited about Central Park and being part of the Apple family. The Apple family. <laughs> well, congrats, guys. Did you want to shout out uh, Twitter or anything people can look for you at or... Um, yes, I need okay. more followers. I'm so, so funny and so clever. And sometimes I'll do a, a tweet and and no one cares. It just it just dies. I've wasted gold. So but I, I only am half joking. But please follow me at Cuban Missile D H C U B A N M I S S I L E D H. And I will entertain you for free for the rest of our lives, I promise. Or you can just follow Benji Samet. That's a little easier. But it's not fair <laughs> because there's not that many Benji Samets and there are a lot of Dan Hernandez. So you gotta you gotta stick out, you know. You gotta it's all about brand. Thank you guys. I guess I have to do the thing we do every episode. Harry, please hand me the envelope. Did we win the Oscar? And the award for best episode. Yes. It's undecided yet, guys. Sorry. No. We're still mid season. Uh we will let you know though. Uh, we have wow. we have your contact info. I, no. That was a tease. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> the real question is: Did you have fun today? I had a blast. I managed that. to fend <laughs> off the encroaching darkness <laughs> for like an hour. Or so. so yeah, I, I would say overall a great success. Awesome. Uh, well, we appreciate it, guys, and congrats uh, on everything. A lot of exciting stuff, and really just appreciate you guys taking the time. It's our pleasure. Our, our pleasure. All right. Thanks, guys. And thanks to our listeners. Thanks. We hope to see Bye, you everybody. next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.